0: Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. And today, what makes a currency stable? The pound has lost ground since the Brexit vote, but seemed to gain a little of that back, then lost some of it again. Uh, The US dollar rose on the hopes of a Trump presidency that might see some opportunities for economic growth, but it seems to be losing those gains as people realise that's probably not going to happen. Then there's currencies like the Aussie and Canadian dollars, driven largely, it seems, by fluctuation in the price of commodities commodities. So how do you make a currency stable? Is it a fruitless task or is it something central banks could be doing more about? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. So this actually, yeah, is a question from a listener, Steve. David asks, what makes for a stable currency? I've heard some argue that it's low public debt to GDP level and others argue that it's low private debt to the GDP level or are both important? Do you think that debt levels are the critical variables? If not, what variables should be considered? I think I know what your answer is going to be. Can I have a guess what you're going to say before you yeah, say Yeah, sure. It? Yep, yep. I think you're going to say balance of trade is probably more important. Yeah,
1: you are. You're dead right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's the vital one, and this is, this is one of the areas where economic theory is incredibly weak and has been a, a very misleading about the dangers of a trade balance being extreme because um, – and it's not just not just neoclassical theory. I think it's also partially what's come out of the modern monetary theory crowd. I'm going to annoy some people saying it, but I'm getting used to annoying people, so why don't I do it? You do it. But, but, a, but a trade balance, um, the, the the neoclassical vision, which goes back to um, the idea of comparative advantage and the arguments which Milton Friedman, amongst many others, is making for floating exchange rates, abolishing the Bretton Woods agreement, going for floating exchange rates, is that with a floating exchange rate the price level of the exchange rate will will do all the accounting for you. So if you have in a country which is running a trade uh, deficit, then it's going to have its currency falling in value. Because its currency falls in value, therefore its imports will be more expensive, its exports will be cheaper, it'll return to equilibrium, and a world of floating exchange rates will lead to balanced trade around the world. Now, empirically, of course, we've had – what, 40-something years now of floating exchange rates, Mm. and we have enormous trade imbalances. And partially the explanation for people that people give about why that's happened comes back to saying, well, there's so many governments involved in dirty floats. You know, it's not actually really a a free-floating exchange. Countries do uh, engage in trying to second-guess the market, keep their currency to set value at one extreme, and then, of course, you've got the biggest... Uh, can uh, biggest elephant in the room is the European Union, because what that's done is locked together the whole of Europe into a pseudo country, which is not really a country at all. Um, but that means that white parts of like Germany have a massively undervalued exchange rate and a running trade uh, surpluses of the order of ten percent of GDP. That applies to pretty close to Germany, Denmark, Switzerland. Uh, I think Norway's similar level. So, of course, if they're running 10% of GDP deficits, then precisely the same aggregate quantity has to run as, as, uh, sorry, surfaces. Yeah. They've been matching deficits elsewhere, and that's why you haven't got balance. And that is not right. That is not the full explanation.
0: And look, and the reason why I knew that that was going to be the case was because I look at uh, the way currency traders work, and they keep on turning to the Japanese yen as the uh, safe haven currency. And, mm. you know, there they you've got a, a, a country where the public debt to GDP ratio is very high. I think it's about two hundred. And the private, yeah. Yeah, both very high, absolutely. And yet it's a safe haven. Um, and what's the reason behind that is because, yes, because they are selling so much more. Their, uh, their current account surplus is so huge. And, of course, mm. this is the same with the Swiss franc as well, which is the other one people turn to and in fact the Swiss franc was tied to the euro of course until a couple of years ago when it was unpegged there was a massive impact on the euro uh, and then you look at what's happened to the Swiss franc since after that brief shock, shock and it's been trading very steadily in a tight range because here's a country that has got a uh, you know is is uh, got its own currency and it's got a, uh, a high current account surplus.
1: Yeah and it said so the fact that the Swiss currency uh, is now we're free-floating having been freed from the because it was the, the euro went down a bit but the Swiss franc went up dramatically. Yeah. I, do you know what's happened to this has it actually come down since then or
0: it's it, it it's gone back below where it
1: was, but I mean the
0: but the main in a way that's irrespective, isn't it? We're talking about stability. It's a very yeah. stable currency now.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's again because when you the trouble again about so much of economic thinking, neoclassical economic thinking in particular, it's static. They draw supply and demand because point of intersection, end of end of question. Uh, they're not putting it in a dynamics in whether you've got growth and change over time. So, for example, to come back to one of my favourite um, issue, it's not my favourite, one of my favourite issues is should the government run a surplus or not? The argument is no, it shouldn't, it should run a deficit because by running a deficit, it creates part of the money supply. Now, if you have a static perspective, you can think, well, the government should on, in general have a balance, so like over the long term should be zero aggregate government balance. Well, if that's in a static world, that makes sense because if you have a a zero balance over the long term, then over the long term, government money is a set proportion of a fixed money supply. But if you've got a growing economy, say the government should have a zero balance, then over time, the government contribution of money goes to zero because the rest of the economy grows and the government does not. And the same thing applies with trade. When you look at trade, people think, oh, well, if we have floating prices, then bang, everything will be reached in equilibrium. No, if you have a country running a trade surplus, then it's getting investment funds from the rest of the world by running that trade surplus. It can then pour those funds into investment, innovate and continue remaining ahead of the rest of the world, therefore maintaining that trade surplus, even though its currency is appreciating. The price change will not compensate for the productivity differences over time. And you can have a country like Japan, which has been running a trade surplus now for going on 40, maybe even 50 years, even through all its ups and downs caused by its financial system. And,
0: of course, it's so reliant on oil imports as well. So the price of oil obviously does have some sort of impact. I mean, but I mean, their currency is stable because, as you say, it's been going on for so long. We assume that they are always going to be in surplus. Therefore, we can always assume that there's going to be a demand for their currency.
1: Yeah, and then that gives you a stable currency base, even when they try to drive the currency down. I mean, they had succeeded in reducing it. But people, I, I think I think, I think, think the original value of the yen to the dollar was 350 uh, yen to the dollar. And there's something in the Japanese political system involving the number 350. It got down to about 100 or even 70 at one stage. It's risen back since then. But for that whole period, it was appreciating. Uh, and for that, most of the time running a, a trade surplus, but the increase in the price was never sufficient to stop them running that trade surplus. They were still innovating. And this is the, the reason if you have a, a trade surplus, uh, you have a strong manufacturing sector, and manufacturing is where you can innovate and over time, as I argue in my energy arguments, what you're fundamentally doing is finding a way to harness energy more effectively than other people do and bundling that into products which, which provide a larger energy surplus to the, to the purchaser and that technological lead can be maintained for decades. Uh, so long as you run that trade surplus,
0: the size of the country obviously has a lot to do with it as well. Because I mean, China's got a high trade surplus. So does Russia. So does uh, South Korea. Uh, the Russian ruble, though, I mean, you know, we've seen it fall by uh, more than half over the last four years. Um, but um, you know, perhaps it's perhaps it's the it's the uh, trade it's, balance per capita that counts. It's
1: it's, I mean, it's it's also the trade balance with manufacturing, right? Because the Russians, uh, you know, fundamentally, it's an oil economy. Uh, it's a resource-based economy, oil and gas, and therefore you're completely susceptible to the ups and downs of the oil and gas price, and that goes ups and down with with economic booms. So you're 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 have got again, to make stuff. Yeah, I mean you've got to well you've got to make stuff. Yeah, and it got the Japanese got almost no resources, but they're running a trade surplus. They're paying for stuff with the incredibly volatile prices that commodities have, and still producing goods even after they've been stuck in a slump for 25 years after their bubble economy burst, they've still got that technological uh, advantage, that manufacturing advantage that uh, England clearly has lost. And what you then have is a uh, the fragility of the currency comes from the fact that it simply can't manufacture enough goods to build that trade that trade surplus. And I meant, actually mentioned economic theory earlier, and we didn't actually elaborate on this point, but Economic theory teaches you that a country running a mercantilist trade system policy will fail because it will cause inflation and the inflation will undermine the value of the currency. And, of course, we can see tremendous empirical proof of that proposition in Japan and Switzerland and Germany and, and of course, total bullshit. Yeah. Um, they, they they have not suffered from domestic inflation. And this is the, the reason people... Um, didn't worry about trade services. They thought they come up and say, no, they haven't. McCandless has been an extremely successful policy. And be, be what we need to have is, a, is an international regime that stops that. And a floating exchange rate system has not done it.
0: So, hence the need for a uh, for a, a separate um, central currency to the US huh. one, yeah, which we, yeah. which we've talked about in the past. What about uh, what about interest rates? I mean, central banks would like to believe, you know, they're tinkering at the edges is having a profound impact on the uh, the stability of a currency. The higher the interest rate, obviously, the more attractive the currency is because you're going to get a higher yield on bonds that you buy in that currency. Mm. Is I mean, but if we look, you know, interest rates are going nowhere in uh, Japan yet the currency is very stable. So what about the role of interest rates and the stability of a currency? Yeah, well,
1: again, that can have an impact, particularly in a country like Australia, which is running a trade deficit. Uh, <coughs> pardon me. You've got uh, if interest rates. If interest rate differential, the rest of the world is extremely high uh, and you are running a trade deficit, then partially what you finance that trade deficit with is a capital account surplus. And for that capital account surplus, you've got to be selling, selling bonds or selling assets. And in that world, your interest rate uh, becomes a major indicator of whether there's gain or loss for somebody in in diving into that currency. And in the Australian case, in particular, because Australian interest rates were so much higher than the than the rest of the OECD after the crisis, because uh, the government managed to recreate a bubble and and uh, and avoid the, the crisis back in 2008, and actually. The Australian government was, the central bank was putting up interest rates after 2010, and the belief the crisis was over. Oh, uh, that gave you, a, you know, in, in case we compared to Japan, as much as the four percent. Think about a three percent, four percent differential between bond rates in Japan and bond rates in Australia, and what that meant was it called? I think it's called the Mrs. Watanabe effect. Is that yeah. the name? They, well, okay. you can, yeah.
0: Well, it, yeah, it's not. It is now because you keep on using it.
1: Thank you. Okay. I <laughs> said, okay. hey, fake news. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> You, but, heard it, um, you
0: heard it here first because we made it up.
1: I've got to check and see if it's – I'll look it up after our conversation. But um, what that meant was it was possible for private investors, private individuals in Japan to buy Australian bonds and get a double whammy because as well as getting like a 4%, let, let's say 4% is a reasonable number, is a, mm. a 4% gain over the rates they were getting in Japan, because they were buying the, the bonds in such – Volume. They were driving up the Australian dollar as well. So as well as getting a high return, they were getting a capital appreciation, and that uh, can give you a massively overvalued exchange rate uh, in the Australian case compared to what it would be if the rates were the same, interest rates were the same as the rest of the world. And that's seen in the Australian case as a major reason why there is no longer even if there's no longer even a foreign-owned car industry in the country. It's all been shut down because there's no way you can compete with local uh, exchange rate being as high as it is and wages being what they are in Australia and the production runs being as small as they are, you can't compete with imported in cars. So, there's boom, there's no, there's no car industry anymore and many other manufacturing industries have shut down for the same reason. So, the, the, the interest rate differential can be seen as contributing to that substantially.
0: So I mean, is it as simple as a central bank saying that uh, look, we're you know our, we're not making enough in our economy, but we need this foreign currency, so we need to play with interest rates to try and get that that money in? Is it negating uh, the effects of of you know of not having a trade surplus? Is that is that basically what's happening? And and if you've you know if you have got a trade surplus, you ne- you need to worry less about that, which is why Japan, you know, not particularly concerned that their interest rate is basically zero.
1: Yeah, and then that's um, in the Australian case. Part of it was because they saw, they saw a return to economic normality, which which hasn't happened. Um, so that's one reason they put the rates back up. But they also did see it with, is in terms of we've got to balance the trade deficit with a uh, with a capital account uh, earnings, and therefore you've got to offer the returns to get the capital account earnings. And the vision was, and this stands up in a lot of neoclassical theory as well, a country running a, a capital account deficit. So – I mean, this is where the, the terms get to be the inverse of the terms you'd use in the in the privates in the um, looking at um, private sector surplus versus deficits. But if you're running a trade deficit, um, that means you've got to have a you know you've got to be selling your assets on the international market. So there's a surplus on that side, and in doing it, the vision was well, you're doing it because you're investing. The reason you're running a, a trade deficit now is you're importing all this capital equipment that's going to mean you can produce this huge. Uh, increase in productivity in the future, and therefore it will balance out and you, know, you go from a deficit to above and in the long run, the average is a equilibrium we 've been forty or fifty years in australia 's case of running a trade deficit, and we 've been deindustrialized in the process and have less capacity to get back to balance again than countries which did the opposite and a so, less, and
0: a less stable currency as a result I mean when there's any risk sentiment in the world. People sell the Australian dollar.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been described as, to me by traders as the, the, it's, it's, it's the slot machine of the global financial system. When you're walking out the door from the casino, you've made a, you made a bit of money or lost a bit of money on blackjack. You throw a couple of, with uh, you know, which, which, which blackjack being uh, the, the euro or the yen or the American dollar, you'll whack a few um, coins in the slot machine to hopefully recoup your losses, if you're lucky, on the casino currency of the Australian dollar.
0: So, But the Australian uh, economy also has high debt. So does that have any influence? I mean, we, we've talked about uh, you know, trade deficits being the overriding factor. Does debt have any part to play in the, uh, in the stability of a currency?
1: I think it does. And again, it's predominantly private debt that I'm thinking about, in that, in that case, not public debt uh, for the countries that issue their own currency. But one thing which comes out of the research, the, my mathematical modelling, is that a higher debt level, is associated with a lower rate of economic growth, uh, in the sense that if I set my model up to have a a, a low level of investment desire by capitalists, which you would think would lead to a low rate of growth, what it leads to is a lower private debt level, and in fact a higher rate of growth because more of the money is still going to the capitalists for investment rather than to the bankers for debt service. But if you have a, a runaway where the where the rate of where the capitalists have a higher level desire for level to and to invest that means you end up borrowing more money you get a higher debt level and you actually get a lower rate of economic growth mm. and that's at a very generic level I haven't got any division of you know industry all I've got is manufacturing fundamentally in that, that very simple model but that, I think an insight is genuine what we've seen so the high debt level means you have a low lower rate of growth
0: yeah, yeah, okay, makes sense, and and of course, you know, if you have a crash like it could happen in Australia, then that really will impact the stability of the currency.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, what you what you'll see is uh, with the country does have a, it's going to have to have a, a housing bubble has it has to come to an end unless Chinese buying keeps it going for you know indefinite period, but they I, I can see that the one the one card they've got left is Chinese is buying a property to keep the bubble going. Mm. And once the bubble stops, the credit growth stops. And then the economy will have a slump. And in that slump, what you're likely to see is a massive fall in the value of the Australian dollar.
0: So, yeah, so look, it may continue, but every Australian will have, have to left the country because they can't afford to buy a house there anymore. And you're already seeing that, actually. I know so many people who've left, Australia myself included, because you can't afford to buy a house there. So yeah. uh, that is the repercussion of it all. Look on the uh, Looking at the uh, currencies again, the stability of it, there's also a bit of tradition in, it, in amongst it all as well, isn't there? I mean, we've got hard currencies like the pound, rightly or wrongly, the euro and the US dollar. They're seen as being stable, so they're traded more because of it, and because they're traded more, they become more stable.
1: Yeah, and this is the other thing which we haven't talked about so far: the volume of trading that occurs f- is orders of magnitude higher than the volume of trading that's done to actually finance goods and services exports. So, I mean, I, I, again, I, uh, the comparative figures are something like uh, that: the volume of trade on currency markets every day is sort of equivalent to like half a year's GDP. Mm. So, you get the, the volume of trading could be a couple of hundred times. The actual level of output of the economy, let alone the volume of exports and imports. So fundamentally, what's setting that prices is, is not something based on fundamentals. It's the speculative waves. And again, according to neoclassical theory, the speculators should wipe out those who are uh, bandwagon followers and leave only the the ones who are based on fundamentals. That you know, that's another pipe dream. Um, so that the volume of currency trading is phenomenal. And of course, it's got all these things like contract for difference, so which should make it even more, leave it and so on. So the valuation ends up being the product of what Keynes might describe the byproduct of the actions of a casino.
0: But it's interesting, isn't it, that the speculators are following your logic. They're not following the logic of saying, "Well, the most stable currencies or the currencies that we want are the ones where debt is low." They're saying, "No, the currencies we want are the particularly when uh, you know there's a the, there's a risk move. The currencies we want are the ones that have got a uh, positive, strong, positive balance of trade."
1: They also have the American dollar as the, as the refuge currency. This is the other thing which happens. So even if there's a crisis in America, uh, when there's a a global crisis, there's a desire to buy American dollars because they are the international currency. And this is where, again, I would, I'm, again, I I separate from the modern monetary theory crowd on this particular point, I think. And that is I would like to see the bank or instituted and go back to a form of semi-fixed exchange rates. Where there's pressure on surplus nations as well as pressure on deficit nations. So at the moment, uh, you can uh, literally run out of American dollars unless your currency depreciates um, well, you know, I, I appreciates. You can run out of those run out of those dollars. So there's but the Americans can't run out of American dollars. So consequently, there's um, a, a pressure, a, a deflationary pressure coming out of all that. Um, that means the surplus countries should be spending to buy more imports to balance it but they don't they accumulate that and they then you know change their own domestic investment financing and so on as germany has done and benefit from it and you therefore have a, a deflationary tendency in the global economy whereas if there was a pressure on the southern nations to spend which is part of Keynes's bank proposal you would not have this deflationary tendency in the in the global economy as a whole so we have all sorts of problems in the financial system and the whole idea that making it market-based alone would be enough has been a complete failure. Mm. All right.
0: The advantages, finally, then, to a stable currency, to the people in the country, when it might be nice, if you're running a business in that country, you've got a very stable uh, currency, you know, it might be easy for you to forecast, although not necessarily, of course, because you're dealing with countries that might have a currency which is less stable. But even so, I mean, a stable, I guess related to that, that's that I've just given it the reason why a stable currency doesn't necessarily mean the same as a stable purchasing power, because you're in a global economy
1: yeah but, but generally speaking, the the less volatility your currency have, the more you're going to get that overall stability, and you can actually do long term contracts and if you're trading again, the Americans have got this advantage that they're not particularly aware of it, but if you are denominating contracts in the American dollar, you know again they're always paying at one dollar for an American dollar. So that gives you capacity for long long supply chains that are more difficult for countries with a volatile exchange rate where they could lock themselves into a long- term contract, for example, for the purchase of oil and then find it doubles or trebles. Uh, in, in, in their currency terms because of a change in the value of their currency and they get wiped out and go bankrupt. So that's, that's a, a, again, an advantage for the stability of your currency overall. You don't face that um, price adjustment potential to be wiped out in the long-term contracts.
0: Well, there are. there's the answer to the question then that David asks, what makes a stable currency? The answer is uh, the stable currency is largely determined by having a, uh, a positive balance of trade. Uh, yep. I got it right at the beginning. Are you proud of me?
1: I am indeed, mate. <laughs> <laughs> we'll
0: catch you again soon. Okay, Matt. Uh, next time, uh, something that Steve and I disagree on, Brexit. Uh, he thinks it's a good thing. I think it's uh, a cliff edge for Britain. And in particular, uh, the Irish question, for which I think there is no answer. We'll look at that in a bit more detail. That's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening.